Welcome to Writers on the Beat, where crime writers meet crime fighters. I'm your host, Gavin Reese. Every episode of this podcast will bring in a variety of experts to help writers of all genres incorporate more authentic cops, crime, and criminals in their stories. Sitting across the interrogation room from me today is a brother in blue whom we'll call Kent the Cop to protect his anonymity. Kent's a veteran officer and investigator and is a nationally recognized drug recognition expert, which is among the toughest titles to earn and maintain in the law enforcement profession. He has a unique expertise on drug abuse and its physical and behavioral indicators, and I thought his insights would be useful for any writer with a drug angle in their work, or for that matter, a suspicious parent who might want insight into checking up on their kids. Uh, Thanks for making time to join us, Kent, and welcome to Writers on the Beat. Thanks for having me. Of course. Uh, for the benefit of our listeners, uh, what is a DRE and how are you useful in the law enforcement world? So you kind of touched on it. A DRE is a drug recognition expert. A uh, little history on that. It started in the early 70s in Los Angeles, California. Uh, a lot of the police officers were arresting drivers that they thought were impaired. They had poor driving behavior. They had all the, the common indicators of somebody who's impaired by something. However, when they arrested them and then did their um, alcohol test, by either breath or blood, they were noticing that they either had no alcohol or a very small amount that they shouldn't have been seeing with the, um, the indicators that they were seeing as how impaired they are. So a couple of LAPD sergeants put together what they called at the time the DEC program or the Drug Evaluation and Classification Program. And that has morphed over the last 45 years into the Drug Recognition Expert Program. So basically what that is is the officers go to Lots of training to even get to there. It's about 176 hours of training between lower classes of training all the way up to the DRE post and preschool, which is 72 hours alone. And we look at common indicators of drug use against seven different drug categories. We also have a little bit more training to look at physiolog- physiological indicators. So we look at blood pressure, we look at pulse rate, we look at pupil dilation and how people's pupils Uh, react to light. And we use all that to form an opinion of what class of drug that person could be under. So we don't look for specific, this person may be under meth or this person may be under the influence of cocaine. That's all lumped into one of seven categories. And then we give that to the arresting officer and and they use that during the prosecution of that that case. So when you talk about looking at uh, categories would be things like stimulants or depressants versus the specific cocaine or alcohol or, or barbiturates. Yeah, exactly. Uh, one of the things um, that I really hope that you could help with today and dispelling some of the common misconceptions about drug abuse uh, for the benefit of the audience, everything that we're going to cover in this podcast is entirely based on our own respective training experience and knowledge and may not necessarily reflect the opinion or experience of any particular law enforcement entity or agency. I, I want to clarify that at the, the, at the point at the front end of this, because there are so many variables in criminal law and circumstances of specific cases that there's no way for us to address all the contributing factors of any one case, much less speak about a, a very general topic like, you know, drug impairment. And our own experiences may differ from that of other cops and other agencies or other parts of the country. Um, To that end, Kent, uh, I hear phrases like routine patrol all the time. Is there such a thing as a routine drug case? 
Not in my opinion. Um, I think just like the routine patrol, it's kind of a, a catch-all phrase for just the the stuff that police officers go out and do every day. Um, but we never try to to treat it like a, a routine case because something that's routine can easily and quickly spiral into something that's anything but routine. Um, so for a drug case, there's a lot of the same indicators we get as far as the the indicators that I look for is a DRE. Um, when we go into a drug house, it looks very different from a, a normal person's house. So those things are routine to a certain degree, but we never try to treat it like a routine case because, like I stated before, it can kind of spiral out of control. But there's certain factors that are usually across the board always the same with certain types of drugs and certain type of drug users that we're dealing with. I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because uh, you mentioned going into a drug house because over the years um, when we've worked together, I've given you a pretty hard time about how easily your expertise can be replaced with a simple blood test, at least, you know, in my biased opinion on a DUI case. And I know that's wait, <laughs> in no way true, but it, it's been a, a source of, you know, uh, me being able to give you grief over the years. Um, where I personally think DREs are, are very undervalued on criminal investigation or it is in criminal investigations and other calls for service where um, your expertise in recognizing that someone is impaired or is under the influence of some other, uh, some narcotic, some drug may really come in, into play in the criminal investigation. Can you talk about a case you've worked other than a DUI where your expertise as a drug recognition expert played a significant role? Uh, yeah, so uh, kind of like you, you stated before, uh, the DRE program was made for impaired driving enforcement, and there are blood tests that can uh, give you a much more accurate, I'm, I'm looking for a type of drug category where a blood test can actually say this is cocaine as opposed to me mm -hmm. saying this is a stimulant. Um, but there's some people that don't do blood tests, so they think that they can beat it that way. And that's where we're really useful. But as far as non-criminal cases, I, I agree. I think that DREs are never utilized enough for that. Um, I have very specific training, as you've mentioned, to, to figure out what category of drug that people are under. Um, so we use that a lot of the times when dealing with uh, a lot of underage marijuana use, um, where, you know, they say that they're they're not high and marijuana is one of the easier ones that even a, a rookie cop can figure out if somebody's high um the majority of people have smelt weed seen weed they see the red eyes that people get uh but there is a lot of time when if i'm just dealing with somebody uh like a transient person or a, a homeless person or somebody who is probably out casing cars or houses to uh break into them that if i stop and talk to them if they're under the influence of meth, let's say I can kind of see those indicators when I'm talking to them mm -hmm. and that'll allow me to kind of turn my investigation towards that, that they're probably not somebody out that's just enjoying a walk on a night um, that they're, they're probably out looking for drugs or looking for some crimes to commit to get those drugs. And, and that's one of the, the biggest benefits of having my, my training on the street on a non driving case. Yeah, that's an incredibly, uh, incredibly valuable tool to be able to, to, to tailor, I guess, an investigation or identify aspects of investigation early on that, you know, otherwise, you know, somebody that's, you know, a, a novice at that is just going to roll up and talk to a suspicious person, have no reason to detain or question them. They're going to go on their way and not be able to actually intervene in the, in the, in the crime that's afoot. Um, but, you know, when you're able to roll up and say, you know, within a pretty brief amount of time that this guy's showing uh, indicators of, 
of, of meth use or stimulant use and, and tailor the investigation that way, that's got to be a huge help for you in actually being able to, to get these guys off the street, at least for a night. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. It, it, I know that after I uh, got my, my DRE certification, I started going back and thinking about all the different people I've contacted, both in cars and on foot that uh, at the time as a, a newer cop, I thought were maybe just really nervous or, you know, it was one in the morning. So they were just really, really tired, but looking back on it now and looking at all the other indicators I saw at the time that I'm sure they were under the influence of something that I just totally missed because I didn't have the training or experience at the time. Yeah, that's probably one of my, my biggest commonalities. Um, you know, the, the deeper you go into law enforcement training, I think, you know, the more, um, you end up looking back over your own career in hindsight with new knowledge and saying, you know what, I really missed this. Had I known at the time, I would have done that very differently. Um, and for me personally, one of the things, uh, one of the big misconceptions that I had coming into law enforcement um, was that, you know, I didn't, didn't understand it. what I now know in my personal experience is the, the, the huge, um, association between drug abuse and addiction and and the homeless population what's your experience with that segment of society i think that there's a, a lot of bleeding hearts of the world that you know want to say that the a lot of the homeless population just got down on their luck they lost their jobs and and that's why they're homeless and i've absolutely ran into some of the homeless population that that had that um i i ran into a guy that lost his job um, at the same time, his wife was going through cancer and she ended up dying and it just kind of all hit him at once and yeah, uh, didn't want to go into work, uh, didn't want to, you know, be around friends or family. And then because of that kind of lost everything. But mm-hmm. um, when when we ran his name through our, the, the criminal system, uh, never been arrested for any kind of drugs, never been arrested for any kind of crimes. I think he got a speeding ticket 15 years earlier and it was just a guy that was generally down on his luck and kind of had a, a, a bad series of things happen to him. But I, I think that for me personally, and, and I, I honestly think a lot of the cops that that's, he's in the minority. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of the homeless that I see may not be homeless by choice, but they, they are addicted to a substance of some kind, which pushes them in that direction. Um, when you're addicted to something so much that you're willing to steal from friends and family and lie to friends and family to get that, um, you definitely don't put yourself first when you're a drug user, you put the drug first and that's how they, they wind up on the street. And at that point, if without any kind of treatment or help, it's a vicious cycle to get them off. So the majority of them in, in my experience do have some sort of substance abuse problem. Yeah. And I, you know, it seems like a overwhelming number of the folks um, that are living out on the streets that I've run into are um, generally have, are dealing with uh, mental health issues, severe mental health issues. Um, and, uh, substance abuse and addiction issues. And oftentimes those things are, um, seem to be correlated that they're, you know, trying to self-medicate with, uh, marijuana and meth or, um, heroin and meth or Suboxone or those, some of those other drugs rather than the, the psych meds because they don't like the side effects. Yeah. Um, to that end, what's your experience about the relationship between, uh, drug addiction and crimes is in general, kind of, but especially property crimes. Yeah. So, so property crimes and fraud are kind of the two big go-to crimes for um, addicts, uh, both drugs and alcohol. Uh, like I kind of stated before, if, if you're putting the drug first, everything else kind of goes by the wayside and that includes a, a normal nine to five job. But 
drug dealers, believe it or not, don't get into the drug game for friends. Um, they get in there to make money. And so they need money yeah. to be able to continue dealing drugs. And so the drug addicts need money to continue to buy drugs. So one of the easiest ways they do that is just by petty theft, petty larceny, um, it's called different things in different states, but essentially just breaking into cars, uh, walking through college campuses, stealing iBacks and phones and wallets, anything they see around um, in some places. Yeah, absolutely. Crimes of opportunity are a huge thing. Um, in some bigger cities and in some kind of worst part of towns, mm -hmm. uh, home burglaries are definitely a thing. So, you know, they have, they don't have a normal nine to five job, so they have nothing but time to walk around during the day when, mm -hmm the the average joe is at work and they can break in and steal any kind of electronics or any kind of jewelry in the house um if they're in a more rural area or an area with lots of construction they can break into construction sites and steal tools which they can uh many tools like power tools and um toolboxes all that stuff they don't have serial numbers on them so it's really sure. easy for them to to go to a pawn shop and say yeah you know i've had this for two years i just mm -hmm. i don't use it anymore and get 10 or 15 bucks for a hundred bucks worth of tools that they can go and get one hit of meth or a little bit of crack or anything like that to, to keep their habit going for the next couple hours. That's kind of been one of the things that's surprising to me about the way that property crime, especially is portrayed, right? Is that, you know, it's, um, you know, there uh, you, you'll see or read about, you know, a couple that's, you know, asleep in the dead of the night and they wake to the sound of, you know, breaking glass and someone trying to get in their home. And I, have in my Hulk police career, I've gone to, I think one call where there was um, a burglary in progress of a residence at night with people home. Um, you almost universally write people are home in their beds at night, but they're not in their businesses, you know? So it's like, you know, the homes get broken into during the day, the businesses get broken into at night, your car out front gets broken into at night, but you know, with rare exception, nobody is trying to come in and, and take, your stuff out of your house while well, you're probably asleep and your dog's in the house, right? Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that, um, and I would, I would second that, that I've responded to very, very few burglaries of a residence while people are home. Um, if, if there is like a, a door kick or a mm -hmm. smash and grab as they're commonly referred to in, in TV shows and books and whatnot, um, I think more times than not, it's somebody who thought the person was gone. And then as soon as they hear anything upstairs or they realize they're there, they usually will leave because that's not an easy thing to do. It's not an easy thing to have to deal with somebody who may have a gun or who may defend themselves um, or is there right then to call the police. So you have a higher chance of getting caught. Like you said, the nobody's at businesses during the nights usually, and nobody's mm -hmm. at their houses during the day usually. So it's, it's crimes of opportunity. They want the most time to get in there and really pick it, the things they think they'll be able to sell. And they, they don't want to run into anybody while they're doing it. You know, and uh, a few years back, um, the Phoenix Metro area made uh, national and international news for uh, briefly. And I, I think a little bit erroneously, but briefly taking over the, uh, the title of the, uh, like kidnapping and home invasion capital of the world from Mexico city. Um, and your training and experience, do the Joneses next door really have to worry about some group of masked men kicking in their door and taking their family hostage? I don't think so. I, I don't want to say that. And then be, be the guy that gets quoted <laughs> yeah. the next day on, on Fox yeah. news or CNN is saying yeah. this would never happen, but yeah, yeah I mean, just, up safe. <laughs> um, I, I think generally, no, they, they don't really have to worry about that. <clears throat> um, I've had a couple of 
similar things to that when at the the town I used to work for, but it was because the family was a normal nine to five working family, good people, and their son got caught up in drugs and with the wrong people and kept borrowing drugs and agreed to pay back the dealer, which he never did. And the dealer broke into the house to kind of send the the kid a message and the family message. But outside of having some already established nexus to the drug world, I don't think your, your average banker couple is going to have to worry about somebody kicking in their door. One of the easiest ways is just to lock your door and, and not make yourself a victim. Yeah. So the, uh, you know, and all, all the, this huge rash suddenly of all these kidnapping and home invasion cases, right? It was almost universally uh, one drug dealer taking action against another drug dealer or, you know, somebody like you mentioned with the drug debt, you know, that, you know, the, the dealer or or a trafficker had fronted them some weight and, and uh, they suddenly couldn't make good on the 40 to a hundred thousand dollars they owed this guy. But yeah, I, I, I don't think that the, the Joneses have much to worry about with that. Um, if writers want to incorporate some elements of uh, drug use or drug addiction in their story, uh, what are some of the critical symptoms and behaviors of drug impairment that they need to make sure they get right? So it kind of depends on, on what, what they're going for. Um, I think a lot of the ones, uh, alcohol is always, a lot of people don't think about it as a drug, but alcohol is the, the most commonly abused drug and has been for mm-hmm. decades in the United States. So, um, between TV shows and research and books, I think people have kind of nailed the the alcohol in indicators. <laughs> yeah, in, in personal yeah. experience. Yeah, it's it's one of the despite it being a drug in in my world for the classification purposes, it's it's a totally legal drug that you know, even if you're you're not a big drinker, most likely at some point you've drank too much for you, and you kind of mm-hmm. know some of that. Um, there are other CNS or central nervous system depressants that fall in the same category as alcohol, which alcohol is a depressant. Um, and those are like, uh, any kind of depressant pills. So usually your antidepressant pills, um, will fall into that. So if they're writing about somebody who has an addiction to those kind of pills, it's literally just, uh, putting in the same things that you would put in for alcohol. So one of the sayings we, we have in law enforcement is if it walks like a talk or walks like a drunk, talks like a drunk and sounds like a drunk, but there's no odor, it's probably one of those depressant pills. Um, as far as stimulants, uh, that's what your like meth, cocaine, crack cocaine, that kind of stuff is going to be. Um, some of the prescription stimulant pills are like Adderalls, Vyvanse, which are the ADHD, uh, ADHD pills. Um, those are just going to kind of be anxieties. Sometimes you'll get some dry mouth. You'll get really quick and exaggerated movements. Um, Is uh, Ritalin and Vyvanse the same thing or are those just related? No, yeah, they're, they're, they're in the same category. They're just okay. one's the generic and one is the, the Walmart brand that okay. do the exact same thing. Um, you're going to get some kind of irritability if they've been on the stimulants for a while. Uh, one of the biggest things is people on stimulants are generally very talkative. So even if they're already a talkative person, they will talk quicker. They'll talk more often. Um, I like to think of it as kind of the American psycho scene with Christian Bale when he's mm-hmm. kind of going around the room before he hits that guy in the head with the ax. He's just talking mm-hmm. a lot about Huey in the news and it kind of doesn't make sense. Um, you, then you get hallucinogens, which are like magic mushrooms, peyote, um, LSD. Um, those can vary greatly if somebody's having quote unquote a good trip or a bad trip. Um, if they're having a good trip, it could just be a lot of like giggling and smiling and laughing. 
Um, their pupils will also get blown out or very, very dilated to the point that even if you have no training, you'll, you'll look at somebody's eyes and go, whoa, those are really, really big pupils. Um, it's another thing that happens with stimulants as well. Uh, I've heard uh, some people occasionally describe somebody that got like really, um, really, I guess, emotionally engrossed in something is like their eyes turning black. And that's kind of what I've always imagined. It's just like their pupil must just like, must expand to the point that, you know, it kind of takes over the rest of their iris. Yeah. So there's a uh, certainly times that, especially if somebody has a really high dose of it or they haven't done it before, um, or it's just a, a really strong, um, part of the drug, um, mm -hmm. or just a, a really strong batch of it. It can, like, like you were saying, their, their eyes don't turn black, but their, their pupil pushes out so much that you, unless you have, uh, really good light, you, you literally cannot see anything of the iris. It's just, the wow. white part of the uh, conjunctiva, which is the, the white part of the eye, mm -hmm. and then just black. And so that's one of the things that, that I look for. Insane. Yeah, yeah. The, the first time you see it. And there's lots of videos. Uh, there's a really famous video that I show in a lot of my trainings of um, two kind of party girls that are on LSD would be my guess, acid. Um, and there's a law enforcement team that walks through the, the crowd and has a night vision camera and lets them look at their eyes and it reflects mm -hmm. the light back. And it is really cool to see because their, their pupils are their entire eye at that point. Wow. That's incredible. Now with, um, with some of the things, uh, I wanted to make sure that we brought up from a, a writing and accuracy perspective. Um, we're, we're going to coin a term here today. Um, socio-narconomics, common spelling, like but, yeah. um, but one of the things that I, I think, you know, um, it, it's absolutely true in, in, in my own experience, my own trainings, right. That, um, there is no element of society that is above or beyond drug use and abuse. Um, you know, the, from the wealthiest man in America down to the poorest and lowest, there's, there's opportunity there for, for all types of, of drug use, but I think that it's fair to say that there are also commonalities, right? That usually, uh, I, I don't think I've ever found, um, you know, cocaine or, um, a lot of party drugs on, uh, transients and homeless folks, uh, people who are struggling to survive. And I've never found meth on a guy that had hope for tomorrow and a decent bank account. Um, what's your experience like with that? Yeah. I, I mean, mine, mine is kind of the same way. There's, I'd agree that there's all segments of, of life and, and all classes of people that use drugs. Um, drug addiction is a very real thing, but like you also said, there's certain drugs that go with certain regions in the United States um, and definitely certain income levels. So, uh, and, and some of those can actually morph into different drugs within the same category as their situation in life change. So one of the, the most common ones that I'll see is you get kids that are in high school um, or early college that start stealing mom or dad's or grandma's pills for pain, um, which in my world is called a narcotic analgesic. An analgesic is just any kind of drug that blocks the pain receptor so you, you don't hurt. Okay. Um, those are usually like Oxycontin, Oxycodone, stuff like that. Um, which is essentially legal heroin. It's, it's pharmaceutical grade heroin and they'll start doing that. And then once they go off to college or maybe mom and dad notices that their pills are gone, um, an oxy pill could be anywhere between 15 and $40, maybe a little bit more depending on how high on the, the milligram dose. is. 
but heroin is $20 a hit or $10 a hit, depending where it is, or if you know the person. So if they want that same kind of feeling that they have been getting for years or months from the oxy pills, heroin is the way to go to that. Um, it's cheaper. It lasts just as long sometimes. Um, so that's a really common morph into that. Uh, as far as like cocaine, powdered cocaine is usually for more affluent people. Um, it's what you see in all the movies of the wall street brokers and everything. Mm-hmm. Um, but then you'll very rarely see somebody in a, a good socioeconomic place using crack cocaine and all crack cocaine is, is powdered cocaine. That's been quote unquote stepped on or, or had other non-drug things added to it to make it stretch longer. Mm-hmm. And what that does is it allows the dealer to buy a powdered cocaine and then step on it and sell it for a much cheaper price, but he can sell more of it. And that's usually what you'll see in kind of poor areas of the United States. And typically crack is smoked versus snorted, right? So it's a different, different method of ingestion. Yeah. Yeah. So, so most crack is, is definitely smoked or uh, smoked where the, the cocaine is usually snorted uh, because it's, it's so powdery and easy to snort where crack rocks are literally little rocks that you, it would be nearly impossible and would also hurt very much to <laughs> snort. Yeah, snorting sand, even if you got it ground down that much. Yes. So uh, to that note, I think most uh, authors and most of the public are aware of the common street drugs, uh, the cocaine, heroin, meth, oxy, marijuana. What are some other drugs of abuse that writers should be aware of that are, are pretty popular right now or pretty common? Uh, I, I kind of touched on it a little bit more. Uh, the, the prescription pills are, are really big for a lot of the, the youth, so the, the teenagers in the early 20s. It's just because they're already around, so they're easy to experiment with. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I, I think it, it kind of depends definitely by region. So um, in the Northeast, heroin is a really big thing. Um, mm-hmm. Where I am in, in kind of central United States, we don't get too much heroin. I run across it every now and then. But because heroin is such a big thing in the Northeast, they're also starting to see a lot of fentanyl, which is just a derivative. Um, it's a synthetic heroin that is one to a thousand times as strong as heroin and is causing a lot of overdoses up there. So I think it, it kind of depends on where they're writing from or, or what they're writing about. So if they're, you know, writing from somebody who is in the perspective of somebody who lives in like South Florida, crack cocaine is a really, really big thing down there. I think it's important for them to get, to do a little bit of research on what section of the world or what section of the United States they're writing on and make sure that they, they hit the common drug there. If they were writing about drugs in, um, you know, like a, a rich suburb of Denver, Colorado, writing a whole bunch about crack cocaine wouldn't be accurate because there's there's not a lot of rich white kids, honestly, that are out doing crack cocaine and smoking crack in the streets. So with, um, with that, um, are there different uh, tendencies of abuse by age? Um, uh, what are the what are the kids using these days, and I guess what kind of indicators and indicia should parents be watching out for? Um, so I, I think it kind of depends on on what they're using. I know for a lot of parents, alcohol is usually the only, in my opinion, the only really true gateway drug. Um, again, if you're talking about states like Washington or California or Colorado that have medical marijuana, mm-hmm. I think that parents are probably going to start to see their kids using marijuana a little bit more noticing some of the the indicators of marijuana just because it's, it's more socially acceptable. So um, like when I was growing up and, you know, I think even still to this day, if there's a 17 or 18 year old kid, that's usually a pretty good kid, but maybe comes home a little bit drunk and, and wasn't driving or anything. 
most parents would probably have a conversation about that. You know, be smart, don't drink and drive, all that other stuff. But that's because it's socially acceptable. It's it's a rite of passage for a lot of people to to have some drinks or have some beers when they're in high school. Um, it's not socially acceptable to do heroin or snort <laughs> cocaine when you're sixteen yeah. or seventeen. Um, so parents know their kids better than anybody else. Um, I, I think one of the, the biggest tips to look for is just if you're starting to see any kind of change in behavior either way. So if all of a sudden they're, you know, super hyper full of life talking and everything, uh, more than they normally would. And only at certain times, that's something to look for. If they always seem like tired and down and they're almost falling asleep or what we call on the nod for somebody that's mm -hmm. under the influence of a narc, like heroin or pills, um, that's definitely something to look for too. I mean, you know, your kids the best. If, if there's something that kind of seems out of place, um, you can always talk to them. Um, mm -hmm. I always recommend not calling the police, um, on a hunch like that to, cause there's not much we're going to be able to do. And it's probably just going to drive a, a bigger wedge between y'all. Um, I mean, your kids not, might not like having the cops called on by their parents. Yeah. Despite what everybody tells, uh, <laughs> their, their toddlers in the store, that right. if they're going to be bad, that we're going to come arrest them. We actually oh don't like God, that I very much. That. I hate that. Um, we are there to help and we are absolutely there to help. If, if, you know, you think your kid is overdosing on something, then by all means, please give us a call. But, um, they can also reach out to their, their local police departments who mm -hmm. often have a lot of kind of dares, not a thing anymore, but, um, the school resource officers that are usually the, the uniform and armed officers in, in middle schools and high schools will have a lot of information. Mm -hmm. Um, and they're also just happy to sit down and, and chat with you about, kind of some of the things you're seeing and they can definitely point you in the right direction of wh where to go from there. Now, um, kind of related to that, I know drug slang differs quite a bit by region. Um, what are some of the common drug slangs that, that writers would want to be aware of right now for, for dope and the associated paraphernalia for use? I feel like for methamphetamine, which is one of the things that, that I personally deal with the most, uh, Breaking Bad honestly did a, a fantastic job. They nailed a lot of it. <laughs> Yeah. Um, I would say just watch that series just to watch it, but also <laughs> then you can take some notes during it. I'm not a writer, so I don't know, but um, yeah, I mean, I, I think the meth is good. Uh, there's cops often go to training sometimes just to, to make their skills a little bit sharper. And sometimes it's to, to get some information on a topic they're not super familiar with. Mm -hmm. I've been to a couple drug trainings that they had, a list of 30 different things that meth was called that I'd maybe heard of 10 of them. So I don't know if the, the guy was just making up stuff to, to fill a slide or if it was just stuff that I'd, I'd never heard of in my region. Um, yeah. But uh, we deal with prescription pills a lot. And a lot of times for like Adderall, they'll just call them like Addies or bars um, because they're not an actual pill. They're kind of four segmented long pieces. Mm -hmm. um, Zanny, Zanny bars, anything like that. Um, the, the internet is a fantastic resource and, even for a lot of my trainings, if I have to give a little bit of a, a topic on, on drug things, I'll usually just Google by regions. And a lot of the times they're pretty accurate. If it sounds like it's a really weird thing that you wouldn't think it'd be called, it's probably not. Drug dealers and drug users usually aren't the most creative people. Um, so they're not going to go too crazy with the names. Give me that five sack of shimmy shammy. <laughs> 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 So what are some of the common mistakes that you've seen in, in books, TV, film related to, to drug use or impairment? Um, I, I think for me, it's not doing enough research on the, the indicators and the side effects of the drug. So I've seen a couple of TV shows where 
they'll the police or you know a concerned family member will go into somebody's house and you know they they've heard from so and so that little Johnny is doing cocaine and they go into his house and Johnny's passed out and they they can't wake him up because he's so high on cocaine. Well, that's not what cocaine <laughs> does. Cocaine is a stimulant. Right. Um, there there is uh, to not get too technical in, in the DRE term. There is a thing called the antagonistic effect, and mm-hmm. essentially how drugs work in the body. A, a real brief physiological snippet on it is. It's, cocaine is a stimulant, for example, so it elevates your blood pressure, it elevates your heart rate, it elevates everything. Your body will naturally essentially pump depressants into your body to bring you, your body always wants to be at a good equilibrium. Um, so just a, a good line, not too high, not too low, not too hot, not too cold. It's just constantly regulating that. Um, so if cocaine will unnaturally pump it up, your body's going to try to naturally pump it back down. And if you keep pumping more cocaine, your body keeps pumping more down until you run out of cocaine and your body is now doing overtime. It doesn't know that you've stopped putting cocaine in and it keeps pushing it down. So mm-hmm. if you go on a bender for a couple of days on top of being tired and not sleeping for a couple of days and with your body pushing all the depressants, you might crash, but it's very rare to walk into a quote unquote Coke house, which isn't really a thing and find somebody <laughs> passed out. That, that's more yeah. something you would see with heroin. Yeah, they're getting back to that socio-economics. Yeah, there's no cocaine flop house because they're up and busy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they're 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 on the the market trading and all the other yeah. things. So yeah, so yeah, just just googling some of the um or or speaking with somebody if you know somebody in that world what the side effects are and the the general indicators are of the drug that you're writing about is what makes it the most accurate. So you would expect to see if you know somebody was a heroin addict to walk into their house or walk into a dope house and see a bunch of people nearly dead that look like they're dead or sleeping because they all just injected heroin and passed out with the needle stolen on their arm. That's something you would expect to see. So I think just making sure that you're writing about the right indicators for the right drug is what's going to make it the most realistic. So after, you know, cop walks into the, the flop house and, and has the, you know, helps recover the person with the needle sticking out of their arm, ignoring all the, all the medical issues that are associated with that. Uh, following the arrest, can you give authors, listeners, a little bit of insight about what happens with a drug suspect after they go into the system? Yeah, I would love to say that you know they they get that first arrest and they they get out of jail the next day or the next week, depending on what kind of drug it is, and and they realize that's kind of rock bottom and they need to turn their life around. But very rarely does that happen. Oh, it'd be great if it was just one and done. Yeah, um, and and there, I mean, I'm sure there are cases about that. Somebody just got caught up with the the wrong crowd and. Mm-hmm kind of step back and realized, oh crap, I am, I'm not this person. I don't need to do this. But for the majority of them, um, th- despite the, the mainstream media with everybody being in, in prison just for drug, a little bit of drug use, if they are, right. if they have personal amounts of drugs on them, which is pretty easy for a, a cop to tell, you know, if it's a little bag with a couple hits for them of whatever their drug of choice is, unless they just sold out, they're probably not selling. Um, so the, the courts definitely look into that. And so what they want to do is give them treatment rehab so they don't keep reoffending and, and coming back. And it's also safer for them. So the, the courts, in, in my opinion, will try everything except jail um, dozens of times sometimes to make sure that we're not just putting somebody that has a mental health problem like we talked on earlier and they're, they're using drugs to combat that or just has a, a drug addiction um, into prison because if they don't do anything for the treatment of the rehab, even if they do go to prison for a year or two years with no 
no treatment or rehab, they're just going to come right back out and start using again. So um, they, they do a lot of what are called drug courts, which are kind of, kind of like a drug probation. They go in and they have to meet with counselors. Usually weekly, they have to attend NA or Narcotics Anonymous meetings. Um, they have to constantly do urinalysis, so to make sure that they don't have any drugs in their system. Um, a lot of the times they'll have to meet with former drug addicts that are kind of volunteering with the program. Um, and then if they relapse on that, they'll get arrested again, and then they'll usually start the whole program over. I've seen somebody go through that eight or nine times before they finally got any jail time. And mm -hmm. I, I realized to a certain degree, drug addiction is, it is a, a, a mental health thing and it is a physiological problem, but at the same time mm -hmm. they did start doing that. So I go back and forth between, I want everybody to be happy and healthy and, you know, I don't want to deal with them in that way. Um, a lot of, you know, I've dealt with a lot of drug addicts that are actually really, really smart people. Yeah. That, and really good folks and minus the addiction. It's, it's very complicated. Yeah. I mean, I, I think there's lots of cops that have dealt with, a local drug addict or somebody that they've dealt with a couple times when they're on a certain drug and then they're completely different mm -hmm. if they're off. Absolutely. Um, and, and every now and then in a couple times in my career, I've been lucky enough to deal with those people and then bump into them two or three years later. And they're like, Oh, Hey man, I wanted to tell you, like I, I haven't touched mm -hmm. drugs in a couple of years. Like, you know, I got like an apartment, I got uh, my family back. I, you know, I have a good job and it's really good to see that because you could tell when you're dealing with them that, that they're good people. And there's some people we deal with that are drug addicts that just aren't good people. They just have no remorse. They don't care. It's all about them, but it, it really kind of hurts on a personal level when you deal with somebody who is a drug addict that you can tell they're a really good person, but it's just that this drug's got the grip on them. Um, mm -hmm. So that, that's why the, the courts push so hard for those treatment programs, which I think is good. Um, but eventually at some point you need to, to help somebody help themselves. And unfortunately, a lot of times that's, that's a jail stint or a prison stint, which is just going to get them off the drug cold Turkey, which isn't fun for them. But sometimes that is the push that, that some people need to finally kick it. Now I know we, we've gone through this, uh, this whole interview and I've not given you much chance to talk about DUIs, which I know is, is uh, your calling and your passion in this life. So, um, my first DUI was actually a DUID, a, a driving under the influence of drugs rather than alcohol. And the driver was super high on Seroquel. Um, and I'll give you a chance if you want to, you, you'll be able to explain that better to the audience. Than, he could barely keep himself upright. And I'll never forget his walk and turn the, the part of the roadsides um, when he's supposed to walk in a straight line, heel to toe. He failed the first half miserably, but instead of turning around like I instructed and showed him, he moonwalked backwards all nine steps. <laughs> do, you, do you have a particular DUI that sticks out in your memory like that? Uh, yes. Oh, I love talking about DUIs. I'm glad you gave me a chance. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. So for, for the people that are curious, Seroquel is an antidepressant drug. So it, it is a uh, depressant just like any alcohol would be. So you'll see a lot of the same things. Um, which is why a lot of rookie cops, even if they don't have drug training, they will often do the roadside maneuvers on people that are under the influence of a depression pill or a de CNS depressant because it looks so much like alcohol that they're comfortable doing that. Um, but yeah, so I, I have a, a couple really good ones. So one of the questions I usually ask my DUI investigations is a subjective question. So it's on a scale of zero to 35 or excuse me, zero to 10. Um, zero being still cold sober and 10 being the drunkest you've ever been or the highest you've ever been in your whole entire life. Where'd you place yourself on that scale right now as we're chatting. And, and that does a couple of things for me. If somebody is swearing up and down, they haven't had any drugs, they haven't had any alcohol and they give me any number other than zero, then they've lied to me because if you haven't had anything, 
If somebody were asking <laughs> that question right now, I would say I feel like a zero because I'm not drunk. Right. Um, this guy thought about it for a minute and then kind of quietly he said 35. And I didn't know if he said three <laughs> to five or if he said 35. And I thought he said 35, but I wanted to double check. And luckily we just got our body cameras at the time. And uh, so I went back and I said, sorry, you were kind of quiet there. So on a scale zero to 10, where are you? And he very clearly this time said 35. <laughs> and I kind of gave my partner a, a glancing look and we're both trying not to laugh. Because I'm like, well, maybe, he, I mean, I know he's drunk, but maybe he just didn't understand it. So I'm going to ask him one more time. I said, so just so I'm sure, man, on a scale of zero to 10, zero sober, 10 to the drunkest you've ever been on your entire life. You are at, and then he interrupted me and he said, 35. <laughs> I said, okay, but the, the scale stops at 10. And he goes, yeah, I'm way above that. <laughs> that one surprisingly didn't go to a trial. Um, I, I think I made the, the correct arrest decision in, in getting that guy off the street. Um, uh, but yeah, you'll, yeah. you'll get some of those. Um, I had a guy that another question I like to ask when I get up to the window and, and I can smell alcohol and they've admitted to drinking a little bit because I was told it's, you know, it's not illegal to, to have a couple drinks and drive. It is illegal to have too much and drive. Yes. And, and that's what our, our roadside tests are, are designed to do. So if you are within the legal limit, I will be able to tell that and you can go on with your night. If you're not, I'll be able to tell that you're probably coming with me. But I like to ask them, you know, how much have you had a drink? Well, I've had two drinks, which is surprisingly what everybody's had, even if they've actually yeah. had two drinks or if they've had more. Um, it's just the size of the drinks that, that differ. Right. Uh, but two I gallons, but only two. Exactly. Two gallon buckets are still two gallon <laughs> or two drinks. But uh, I always ask them, okay, well, thanks for being honest with me, man. Do you, do you feel safe to drive right now? The majority of them, even if they don't, they'll say yes because they want to get out of there. But I had one guy that just kind of looked at me and laughed and said, fuck no. <laughs> Which again, we have body cameras, so that, that, that was a good, a good snippet for the report. I appreciated his honesty. It probably didn't help him in the moment, but... No, um, well, you know, it, it probably saved his life, and, you know, your, your homicide prevention squad got to call it a, a, a good, safe night, you know. Oh, I'm glad you brought that up. Absolutely. <laughs> homicide prevention. I thought you would enjoy that. <laughs> well, I, I greatly appreciate you taking time to come on and, uh, and talk to us, Ken, give the, uh, the listeners and potential aspiring writers some, some insight on, on drug use and uh, drug abuse and some of the manifestations about that that we see in the, the interaction between cops and, and, and criminals and addicts in society. Uh, thanks again to Kent for joining me today. You've been listening to Writers on the Beat, a proud part of the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. I'm your host, Gavin Reese. Until next time, take care of yourselves and each other. Be safe out there.